Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. One of my favorite novels this year is The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, a fictionalized oral history of a rock duo from the 70s. And our guest today is the author of this book, Donnie Walton. In addition to being a debut author, Donnie is also a journalist and editor who focuses on the intersections of identity, place, and pop culture, all of which we talk about today. The Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on our show on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you're looking for even more from The Stacks, you can check us out on Patreon to get bonus episodes, discounts on merch, and The Stacks Virtual Book Club, plus a lot more. Plus, anyone who joins by the end of November 2021 gets The Stacks official reading tracker for 2022. For more information, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. And I want to take a quick moment to thank our latest members of The Stacks Pack. Rahima Brua, AP, Lashana, Quinn McNutt, Britt, Rebecca, Diane Brown, Marley Osma de Forest, Jillian Wooten, and Cece. I really could not make the show without all of you and, of course, the rest of the Stacks Pack. So thank you. I am now thrilled to present you all with my conversation with the wonderful Donnie Walton. Okay, everybody. I'm very excited. The author of maybe my favorite novel this year so far is here on the stacks today. Donnie Walton. She's the author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. Donnie, welcome to the stacks. Tracy, I'm screaming to be here. So excited. I'm really excited too. I have so many questions about your book, but before we get to the novel, will you just sort of tell folks a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I currently live in New York. I've been here for over 20 years, but I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida, also home to Disha Filia, Don Teal Moniz. I have a background in journalism. Uh, as a kid, I always wanted to write, and I thought that was the practical way to do it. Uh, but in my heart, I always wanted to write fiction. And so after a very long career in magazines primarily, and I had risen to sort of very kind of senior level editorial roles where I wasn't really attached to words much at all anymore. I decided it was time to follow my dream. And at the time I was sort of working 
on the edges of my day, early in the mornings, before my job, late at night. And I decided it was time to make something more of that. So the book I was writing was this one, my first book, Baby, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And uh, went to grad school with a mission Hmm. to finish, to actually finish something I was working on and um, was able to do it. And here we are. I love this so much. I love that you had a whole other writing career before this book kind of came into the world and took people, I think it's fair to say, by storm. Like, I feel like I saw this book everywhere. People were talking about it. And I I think that's really exciting because I think so often we're obsessed with like fresh out of undergrad person, like Sally Rooney, 17-year-old child writes a book, you know? And like, I love that you have life and work experience as a writer, which is also super rare. How does writing as a journalist compare to writing a fiction story? And where do you feel like, I think a lot of people think of these things as being really different. I'm curious where they're very similar. Well, you know, Tracy, what's funny is that in my career as a journalist, I was mostly doing editing work. I didn't Mm. do much writing at all. I kind of went in, started as a copy editor, and then went into line editing And I think there is still kind of a writer's mind that goes into that to some degree. But as an editor, I was really kind of thinking about like the full picture of a story. And I think that really helps with my fiction writing, um, where I was thinking about from the very beginning of something, where is this going to end up? Mm. Not necessarily knowing what the final note would be, but Mm. sort of knowing what is interesting about it and the things that should be explored in it. Yeah. Um, so those things were super helpful. That's interesting. So when you sat down to write Opal and Nev, did you have a big picture? I did not know where it was going okay. <laughs> at all, which is wild. I mean, I'm totally a pantser, as they say, uh, in, in the literary world. Like I've never heard flying of that. By, yeah, oh. so it's like... Pantsers and planners, I think, is is the opposite of that. But a pantser is someone who's just flying by the seat of the pants. You know, you have some characters and you have some worlds that you're working in. And it's just sort of like going step by step and letting these characters take you where they may. I knew what I wanted the character arcs to be. And I knew what I wanted the tone to be. And the kind of story that I wanted to tell, but the exact like plot points that was going to happen. I had no idea. No idea. Okay. We should tell people what the book's about. I sorry, I sort of dove in because I'm so excited to talk about it. But I'll give sort of a quick my version and then you tell me if I missed anything or I left anything out. Okay. It's called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And it's about a rock duo in the 1970s. Opal is this like ostentatious, fashionable, fierce black woman who is sort of like the heart and soul of this group. And Nev is this British redheaded white boy who is sort of the like mastermind. It's his thing. And then she kind of is the one that you can't take your eyes off of. And it's about their career in the 70s. And then I don't want to spoil anything, how it sort of plays out moving forward. There's an incredible event that takes place in the book that I think you tell us on like page two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Page one, really. Yeah. It's very early. So I'm not spoiling anything. There is a concert that has a shooting involved. 
and someone dies. Am I, Not a shooting, but like close. A beating. Uh, someone a beating. does die. A beating, yes. I, I've yes. got that confused because I'm just getting ready to ask you about another question. But anyways, a beating. <laughs> someone dies. And so we're sort of working towards this part of the story. And it's and, and I should say this. It's an oral history, which is one of my favorite nonfiction genres. So I was super excited to have a fiction oral history. So that's sort of a weird, not super concise, need a copy editor version of the book. <laughs> what did I leave out? Ah, uh, that was really, really good. Okay. Um, I think the only thing I would add is that the story is being told um, by a journalist uh, in the year 2016. Uh, and the journalist has a personal connection to Opal and Nev. Uh, and this is not a spoiler to say because this is the very first sentence of the book. Um, she discloses to her reader that her father was the drummer for Opal and Nev and that uh, he had an affair with Opal and, and died in this incident uh, before she was born. So her mother was pregnant with her. This thing happened. She never met her father. And so her doing this oral history is sort of a way for her to kind of interpret the past and understand her dad and all these different things. And so you have the two different timelines in 2016 and in 1970s, early 1970s. Okay. Why did you want to tell this story and how did it come to you? Because it's so specific and so unique and like the form and the story and everything really come together in this beautiful way. So I need to know, what were you doing that led this to happen? Oh, gosh. So I started writing it uh, in 2013 and I was going through a lot of stuff in my personal life. I'd gone through a breakup that was very devastating and I was kind of questioning everything about what I was doing and I had more time on my hands. Mm. And I decided it was time to go back to a person I used to be who would do writing and, <laughs> and, and make up stories. And one day I was home alone. I was watching a documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh, which, so uh, good. Yeah, Mary so Clayton. good, right? Yeah. Yes. So um, for those who haven't seen it, it is about background singers, most of them Black women whose voices you totally know like Mary Clayton on Rolling Stone's Gimme Shelter, but you don't know their names or their faces. And at the very beginning of that film, they show this footage from a Talking Heads concert. I have always loved Talking Heads. I love David Byrne. He's such a weirdo. <laughs> and the camera's on him. And then to his left, you see these two Black women who were just so joyful and dynamic their names are Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry, and they look like they could have been my aunties. Like they had these micro braids and these bright red lips, and they were just so committed to this weird music. And I just wanted to pull one of them to center stage with David Byrne and see what happened for the rest of the concert. And the image of those two characters is something that really stuck with me. Mm. And I thought, I've got to start writing this down. And so Opal's voice came to me first. And the reason I chose oral history is because, like you, I've always loved it. And I used to work for Entertainment Weekly. Mm. And we used the form a lot for telling the stories of, like, iconic movies or TV shows or albums. And it just lends, like, instant icon status mm -hmm. to anything because it's like, 
There's so many people who have an opinion about this thing, who have funny stories about this thing. And I wanted Opal and Nev to some degree to feel iconic. And I also wanted to get their voices down raw, you know, uh, in moments without narration. And so that's how it started. And it ended up really working for me, weirdly. I loved playing around with it. And it felt like play, just switching voices and finding out who each character was through like the way they cursed or the way they put a sentence together or, you know, Nev kind of talking in run on sentences mm-hmm. and Opal sounding very much like Southern women I've known and, and, and all of those things. So it was something that started as a lot of fun and then got a lot more serious the deeper I got into it. Yeah. It, and that's sort of how the book kind of unfolds too. I mean, it starts serious because you know there's going to be this like death, but it's sort of like a fun story and like the characters are so carefree. And it's true that, I mean, I love oral history because I I love the lack of editorializing. Like I love yeah. just hearing about a story from the people that were there. Like one of my favorite oral histories is I don't know if you remember the now defunct website Grantland, but it was like a sports yes. pop culture and they did an incredible one on Malice at the Palace. Um, oh, yeah. I just watched a, a yes. documentary about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did an incredible one on that. And then they also did an incredible one on the 1989 World Series earthquake. And like, it's just like these moments and you get all these different voices. And what I love, and you do this in your book, is it's like you have your main characters and then you have like someone pop in for like two sentences. Like, (laughs) yeah. And I helped her put her lipstick on and it was really ugly. And you're like, great, cool, awesome. And like, it's like these little like, because if you're writing it as like a traditional novel, it would be like, and then the makeup designer came and you'd have to get this like whole backstory of this person who doesn't even matter. And like, who cares? But you can just throw them in, you know, you get to name them something funky fresh. You totally get a sense of who they are. And then it's like, they say their three little bits and then they're gone. And like, that's life, right? Like that someone comes in and comes out. And so I just, I just love that about the form. And I love that about your work. Are there like specific oral histories that you can think of that you've loved? Yes. So my favorite is actually one called Live from New York. It's about Saturday Night Live. Yes. Um, James Andrew Miller, I think, and Tom Shales. Um, And Tom Shales, I used to work with at the Washington Post. Um, Really great reporting. But what I loved about it was it was so unexpected, the stories Mm. that everyone was telling. I I remember um, the jacket copy. I think (laughs) it was a lot of kind of funny quotes. (laughs) And then it was one from like Dana Carvey. And he was like, I cried in my dressing room every day. (laughs) It was like, what? Like, what was going on? And just to understand, you know, how different icons, because so many have come out of that show, were sort of shaped or triggered or or made joyful or whatever by going through the same experience Mm -hmm. was really, really interesting to me. Yeah, Ugh, I love. There's one on The Office that I read this last Ooh. year that's like pretty good. It it fizzles, but it starts off really strong. And then there's the one on 9/11, the book um Only Plane in the Sky that's also incredible. Oh, I haven't read that one oh, yet. Oh my god. That I just got my stomach just started like clenching when Oof. I said it's so good, but it's really it's a lot. Um Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about research because I know you did a ton. I can just tell because there's like all these little details. <laughs> so I want to know how you balanced research with your own creative license? Oh, that's a great question. 
what I try to do is <laughs> I try to be creative first okay. and I try to write out the story as I sort of saw it or felt it first. And then I would go back and research the thing more thoroughly and make sure it was feasible mm -hmm. or realistic. One of the things that really helped with this was at the time I was writing a bunch of the research intensive parts. I was actually at a residency um, at McDowell and in the studios at McDowell, there is no internet oh. <laughs> at all. And I also had no phone, phone service. At the time I had T-Mobile, it sucked. I like, I had no bars <laughs> at all in the middle of the woods in New Hampshire. And so what I would do was I would spend all day writing and just like, as I saw things happening, and then I would go to the library on campus, like after all that. And that's what I would do the mm. research because otherwise I find now that I'm back, you know, when I'm back in a normal setting with internet, I will get distracted by the research, like in the moment when I'm trying to write something and it kind of like takes me off course. So, you know, and I was looking at everything. I was looking at YouTube clips from late night TV back in the seventies mm. when late night was so edgy and surprising and not as like scripted. I was looking at billboard charts. I was, oh gosh, reading old New York Times stories and Times Machine, their archive, um, all of those things. I mean, thank God for the internet. I don't know like how, how people used to do it. I also read uh, a book about the Battle of Versailles by Robin Givon. Um, so it was a mix of like reading full texts and then just like going deep, deep dives on the internet. Ugh, I love that. Okay. There is this photo in the book that gets talked about. First of all, I know I'm not alone. I, someone actually just told me this recently. People are Googling for that photo. I want you to know. People really think that this photo wow. exists. I've had multiple people be like, I Googled for the photo. And I'm like, you guys know it's <laughs> fiction. I think because I really liked the book and so I was telling people about it, I think some people thought it was nonfiction because it really, really comes off that way. Like it, it feels like super real life. You have all these real like pop culture characters. But are there any photos that are real? you feel like kind of inspired this image in the book? Because it feels so real. Oh, well, thanks. Um, it's funny you should ask that because for three years of my career, I was working at a startup that was the reincarnation of Life magazine, which of mm. course has some of the most classic photography yes. of all time. And that website was a photography website and we would do photo essays like tied to various anniversaries. And so it required digging into the archives and say, finding a classic photo and calling to the warehouse in New Jersey to get the full set of photography, right? So you had like all these other pieces from the shoot, all these other pictures, but then you also would have like the photographer's notes. They would type up the story of the photo shoot. And if, you know, the photographer was still alive by that time, these primarily these men were in their 90s. Right. But I had the opportunity to interview some of them. And what was so fascinating was the gap between how you interpret the photo or the, the feeling you get from seeing the photo and what's actually true mm. about what's happening. 
And that distance was really compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, because I was doing a lot of celebrity stuff, like looking at old photo shoots of Marilyn Monroe and Audrey Hepburn and, you know, what was interesting to me was just the idea of imagery around people and how it builds up their persona and how true those things actually are. And so that was what I wanted to explore in this photo of Opal Jewel and Nev Charles escaping this moment that was very sort of tumultuous and very tragic, but also launched them into fame. Yeah, I feel like and having that sort of be the thing that launched them just feels so right on. I know so many people who have become, you know, successful out of these like really dark and horrible events. So I really like that that's like tied into their to their story. I've sort of mentioned this, that there's like a lot of pop cultural references throughout the book, like famous people that we know, like there's like a Quentin Tarantino moment in the book that's so good. I'm wondering sort of how you thought about bringing in real life people and if you ever thought about like creating an entire world or if you always knew that they were sort of going to be situated in a world that the reader knew. So the complication of the book was... (laughs) You have to make, you have to write it in such a way that it feels like the reader has known about this group because Mm -hmm. in in the world of the book, like they're famous, right? But the reader in the actual world has to learn about these people. Right. And so, you know, the reason I was bringing in real people and real events was to give everything context, Mm -hmm. give, give context around Opal and Nev so it situates them in history and in cultural moments that feel like big and important and meaningful. And I was also, you know, those moments where it felt really risky when I was bringing in like Quentin Tarantino and like Janelle Monet and all right. these people who had commentary about Opal and Nev. And actually, you know, I was like, hmm, when we were going through publishing, I was like, is this legal? Like, it's okay. <laughs> and it ended up being being fine. But I was thinking as a journalist again and thinking if I was doing a book about this duo, who would have something interesting to say? Who would be influenced by them? Um, which is where Janelle Monet came in because I thought, you know, yes. Opal Jewel might have been a heroine for her. And then like who would have something kind of wild to say and something a little bit eyebrow raising to say just to make it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I brought those, those real people in. Um, I, yeah. So yeah. good. I love those moments. And you write sort of like, you know, this book sort of comes into the intersection of like identity and pop culture and sort of a lot of things, but those are the two things that are coming to my mind right now. How do you navigate sort of the way that pop culture sees things, which isn't necessarily always the way that things are? Mm. You know, I think that was weirdly, that was also a part that required research. Mm. It was to be sitting here in, well, then it was like 2015, 2016. 16 or whatever, um, sitting from that standpoint and understanding what an artist's image is in that moment, and then going back and reading things about them written 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and seeing how they were viewed then. Mm. 
you know, I mean, I'm trying to think of a celebrity who's a good example of that, but um, a sports figure, of course, would be Muhammad Ali, Sure. who, you know, by the end of his life was pretty much a hero to everyone. Right. But at the time where he was being, you know, boycotting the Olympics, you know, not going to Vietnam, he was written about in a very different way. He was presented in a very different way. And so there are those gaps to consider. And I think with the character of Opal, what was interesting to me was thinking about her as an artist who was always somewhat ahead of her time Mm -hmm. in terms of her style and who she was and how she presented herself. But then in 2016, it's like the moment is finally coming. The moment is finally here. And so what does that mean for her? Right. Okay. I feel like I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but I don't care. I haven't asked you about it, so I'm going to. (laughs) Um, The Rolling Stones have this iconic concert at at Altamont in the Bay Area, right? It's in California. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm like, I'm Mm -hmm. from here. I feel like I know this. Um, And it involves the Hells Angels and a black man is killed. And it's this really crazy moment that feels so emblematic of what was going on in the Bay Area and in rock and roll and all of these things. Was that event influential to you? Like, was that something that you pulled on because of the the concert in your in your book? That's all I could think about. Oh, totally. Okay. Totally. That was inspiration. <laughs> and in fact, there's a, uh, I think in one of the footnotes I mentioned that uh, people call this concert Altamont East. Yes. Because the real Altamont happens like maybe uh, a year before this one. Um, but yeah, I drew a lot of inspiration from that. I mean, there's so much going on with <laughs> that moment in time. And it's very terrifying if you see the footage from it. Yeah. And they're actually playing Sympathy for the Devil. So it seems sort of like dark and demonic and confused and... I wanted to create that same kind of chaos with this concert. The concert in my book, what I wanted to do was because I've I've always been fascinated by the early 1970s. It was such a, there was so much going on in music at that time. If you look at the billboard charts, there were so many different kinds of songs on the, Mm. on the charts. And, you know, you had like, Laurel Canyon stuff going on and you had proto-punk and you had, of course, the conscious soul music of the time and all these different things um, were doing well with different people. And you have in the book this record label that is just throwing spaghetti against the wall and trying to figure out what works. And so they're, you know, sure, let's try this. Let's try that. And they do the showcase concert where like all these different kinds of people and fan bases are coming together in one room. And so, you know, when I was thinking about this concert, I was thinking about, oh God, if you had, you know, Southern rock band, right. You know, and they're biker fans with a group like Opal and Nev. Right. That's wild. Right. It's going to happen there. Um, And, and that's how I was really kind of framing that. Yeah. I think, is there a, there's a documentary about the Altamont concert moment. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's actually called Gimme Shelter, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I was going to say it's called, I was going to say it's called Sympathy for the Devil, but I don't think that's right. But I definitely feel like there is a documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah. I learned about it in Season of the Witch. 
Do you know mm. that book all about San Francisco? I don't know that one. It's not a great book, but they have like a really interesting section on that. Yeah. Colson Whitehead also has a whole section on it in John Henry Days. Oh, okay. I got to check it out. A book that came out from years ago. Yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by that event. And uh, yeah. Okay. This is my last question for you about Opal Enough for now. We'll see. I might come up with some more. Um, What were you listening to when you were writing the book? Oh, Many different things. (laughs) I was listening to um, a lot of artists that had direct influence on Opal for me. Okay. So I was listening to a 70s funk icon named Betty Davis, who was this amazing um, Black woman who was a former model and uh, a songwriter. And she didn't even really call herself a singer. She was more like a, she said she was like a vocalizer or something like that. And she made this kind of wild um, funk rock, very sexual uh, music in New York City. And she had kind of a very brief heyday and then got sick of her label trying to tell her who who to be mm. and just quit the industry altogether. And uh-huh. she is basically like a recluse now uh, in her hometown of Pittsburgh. Um, there's actually a really great documentary about her called They Say I'm Different. Um, but I was listening to that. I was listening to a lot of the music I loved in high school. So I grew up, you know, loving all kinds of stuff, you know, the kind of native tongues hip hop that my cousin introduced me to and all the 70s soul that my parents love, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. But then also I was really into alternative music and indie rock. Mm. And it felt like wild and taboo and like I wasn't supposed to be listening to it. <laughs> um, and so, of course, as a teenager, it's more attractive. And um, in Jacksonville, there was an all ages club that was like had some of the most iconic alternative and uh, indie rock and punk bands came through town and uh, it was like a dance club. And I was thinking a lot about those years. So playing music from that time and Mm. trying to feel again, like the fan that I used to be, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I'm 45 now and I don't know much about new music, but I just remember the feeling of hearing something new and how excited it can make you. And, um, you know, there's a section when I'm writing from Sonny's point of view, the journalist character, and that's pretty much taken from my real life. And that's the response that she has in her body when she hears something that Mm. she really loves. And it's almost like a fear response, like chills and like almost feeling like you want to run out of the room, you know, like I started listening to music that made me feel like that. I love that. I love that. You should have a, if you don't already, a Spotify playlist that people can I do. You do. Okay, I'll link to I it in do. the show notes. I was going to say, yeah. if you didn't, that would be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. I love the book. We're going to hop off that. We're going to do this thing we do called Ask the Stacks. Um, someone wrote in requesting book recommendations and we're going to give them some together. Okay. So here's what they said. Brianna P., I read a lot and across genres, but typically only 25% of my reads are nonfiction. I struggle to prioritize nonfiction and you, as in me, Tracy, give great nonfiction recommendations and I'm looking for more. I love it when a nonfiction read draws me in and teaches me something that I really need to know. 
but I can get bogged down in very thick nonfiction reads. Memoir can be hit or miss. Nonfiction reads that I've loved include The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, Heavy by Kiese Lehman, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown, Stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi, Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, and 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. They said they're they're preemptively telling me not to recommend a book that they know I'm going to. They said I got Empire of Pain on my TBR, given all the raves, but I'm wondering if there are other nonfiction reads out there I should pick up and prioritize. So, Donnie, I'll give her three recommendations, and then you can give one or two or whatever you want. Okay, um, sure. Okay, so Brianna, I am giving you three different books that are sort of memoiry, but sort of not. The first one is called Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan. If you've been listening to the show, you know this is a book that I like secretly love. It's totally not my vibe necessarily, but Kelly Corrigan, it's like an advice book about sort of like the things we need to learn how to say. And it's tied up in sort of her grieving the loss of her father and one of her best friends. And I wept when I read this book, like a real loser on an airplane. And it's one of my favorite books favorite books and it's memoir-y, but it's also sort of self-helpy, but in like the perfect way. So that's my first one. My second one is another favorite. It's called The Reckonings by Lacey M. Johnson. It's a collection of essays all about justice. And the essays range from things like kind of tying together the death penalty and children with cancer to environmental pollution, to oil spills, to Hurricane Harvey. And she talks about what justice looks like and what justice means. And it's just fantastic writing, so beautifully written and will really make you think a lot about sort of morality in an interesting and not preachy way. And then my last one is another memoir. It's called Memorial Drive by Natasha Trethaway. And it's the story, it's very short. It's the story of Natasha Trethaway's mother who was murdered by her stepfather when Natasha was 19 Natasha has since gone on to become like the poet laureate. She like gave a poem at Obama's inauguration. She's like a big deal poetry person. But this is sort of a memoir that's all about this moment, uh, moments in her life and domestic abuse. And it's just so beautifully written. And it's also very slim, which I appreciate when a book can be sort of heavy, like as you can imagine a book about your mother's murder, maybe. So those are my recs. Uh, Donnie, what do you have? So I'm going to recommend a book that is beautiful, but also, if you don't mind, a little cathartic crying. Okay. It had me boo-hoo, <laughs> like big snotty tears. Brother, I'm Dying by Edwidge Danticat, mm. um, which is a family memoir that is essentially, it's a little bit about herself, but mainly about her uncle and her father and their relationship and what happens to their family um, when her uncle tries to get here from Haiti uh, amid uh, unrest there. And it also is also a book that makes you cry because it's so enraging. Mm. The suspicion with which her uncle, you know, was viewed and, and all of that. Very beautiful book, beautiful writer. Um, I also recommend A Little Devil in America uh, by Hanif Abdurraqib, which is probably... Probably my favorite book it's of my, the year. It's my, it's my, I think it's my favorite nonfiction of the year. It's incredible. Yeah. If you're into pop culture that has a personal 
event. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a collection of essays about everything from a Whitney Houston performance on the Soul Train Awards Mm -hmm. to, oh my gosh, to uh, Gimme Shelter, to Gimme Shelter, Mary Clayton, um, all those things. And Hanif so movingly and brilliantly writes about how all these things had an effect on him. Uh, Personally, loved that book. I, I had so many emotions, joy, and, you know, when he, moments he was writing about his mother and his grief over his mother, just, it just took me out. I loved it. Ugh, I love that book so much. It's so beautiful. He was on the podcast. It was such a dream come yes. true. He's just such a special writer. Um, yeah. Okay. But Brianna, if you read any of these books, you have to let us know what you think, how we did. Um, even if we failed, don't tell Donnie if she failed. You can tell me. But Donnie's our <laughs> guest here. So let's not be an asshole. <laughs> um, and we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. All right, everybody, we're back. It's time for Donnie to answer the very important Stacks questions. We always start here. Two books you love and one book you hate. 
<laughs> Two books I love. Um, gosh. And I was trying to think how I could not mention The Warmth of Other Suns mm. like every other thing. But that book. Incredible. That book is probably my favorite book of the last, I don't know, few decades. Yeah. But, you know, of course, the story of the Great Migration, I learned so much from it and it reads like fiction. Mm -hmm. And I am excited for the adaptation if that ever happens. I know yeah. that was in the works. Um, I also love, I love thinking about, you know, when an author has like a hit book and then there's other books that I actually kind of sometimes like better. So I was thinking about Silver Sparrow by Tayari mm. Jones. Um, of course, American Marriage was her big Oprah book. But I just loved Silver Sparrow. It had everything for me. It had like juiciness and intimacy and bond between women and like all the complications of family and funny moments and sad moments. It just like hit on all levels. I loved it. Mm. And a book I Yeah, what book do you I hate? hate. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sure you've heard this before. Heart of Darkness. No. Heart of Darkness is a book I hate. I hate it so much that I actually included it in Opal and Nev, a little <laughs> dig at it. Um, yeah, I just, it's just incredibly racist. I had to read it in high school and I wrote an essay for class about how racist it was. And my teacher couldn't do anything, but like give it an A. Oh my God. <laughs> like, what could he say? It's a terrible book. Oh my God. I've never read it. Uh, Thankfully, don't, please. I don't plan on it. Um, yeah. Okay, what are you currently reading right now? And are you a person who can read multiple books at once? I am reading The Days of Afrikiti by Asali Solomon. Okay. Good so far. I'm just at the very beginning of it. It's a book I've been looking forward to for a very long time since I read an excerpt uh, online. I can't read more than one book at a time. I'm a very slow reader and I like to watch everything play out like a movie in my head mm. and that requires like real focus and immersion right. so yeah I you know I can the best I can do is read like magazines okay. and like stuff online but one book at a time got it you're yeah. like me we call that a one book pony around here that's uh, really my jam but did you know that some people don't see books in their head when they're reading them I didn't know that I always assumed everyone imagined what they were reading. I don't know how you couldn't. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I know. Yeah. When I found this out, I was really, that's the thing about this podcast. I've learned a lot of things that I just assumed everybody did. Apparently everybody doesn't do everything the exact way that I do it. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for them. I know. Sorry, sorry for your loss. What are some books that you're looking forward to reading? They don't have to be new books. They can just be things that you're like, I can't wait to get to that. Yeah, I can't wait to get to Harlem Shuffle, mm. Colson Whitehead. I still have not read Nickel Boys. I oh my God, you have, have to read it. Read. I know, I know. It's on my TBR too. It's one of the, the best novels I've read in a, in a long time. Oh my gosh. And it takes place in Florida, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I've, I've got that one, um, those two. Um, Viola Davis has a memoir coming out. Oh, really? Next oh, I, year. Oh, I saw that. Is she like in like a pinkish color on the cover? Maybe I don't remember what the cover looks like. I well, it's a given. She's gorgeous. I yeah. mean, dropped. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, but I just think 
like she's going to have so many amazing and jaw dropping stories to tell. And Mm -hmm. I can't wait to read that one. And then everyone's been teasing me with the new Anya Yanagihiri. Oh, yeah. Paradise. Yeah. I have feelings about a little life, but I will definitely read like other things that she writes. Welcome to the I Have Feelings About a Little Life podcast. Please share. I Every time this book comes up, I share some of my feelings. I'm curious what yours are. Oh, well, I know one of the things that you ask is a book that made you cry and then a book mm-hmm. that made you angry. And mm-hmm. for me, A Little Life was both of those things. Okay. It was like crying because I was sad and then crying because I was angry <laughs> and angry at myself for feeling sad. My feeling uh, is that I think there it's beautifully written and there mm-hmm. are many beautiful, beautiful moments in that book. And some of the moments that I found most touching were the moments of pure love and kindness mm-hmm. with the uh, Jude being adopted and all of that, that relationship um, I loved. But I felt by the end, it was just like over the top with yeah. the, with the chat. Like I wanted to throw it across the room where <laughs> that one thing happens. I know you know yeah. what I'm talking yes, about. I was just like, you know, there's a particular filmmaker whose movies, you know, I won't name who it is, but it's like, it was predictable, predictable because it was like, if you think about the worst thing that can possibly happen, that's sure. what's going to happen. Sure. And yeah. I felt like at a moment it was less sort of, showing, you know, the tragedy of this and more like experimentation, like how far can how far can, can this go? be pushed? Yeah. And yeah, I just totally. like, yeah. Yeah. I think I tell the story on the show before, but in case I haven't, my friend Sam told me to read the book and I was on vacation and I get to the like the, you know, they're like different sections. And one section is like titled like the happy years or something. And I just text Sam. I go, these aren't going to be no goddamn happy years. <laughs> like I was so mad. I was like, what a lie. Like, why are you fucking with me? I already know. Because it's like sort of earlier in the book where you're like, not sure, like it hasn't gotten really sad yet. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like this, this person is lying to me just to be manipulative. I hate you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's that first half of the book that's so gorgeous and mm-hmm. so beautiful that makes you push through the end yeah so it's like I can't even really say if I like the book or not just because like I just have dueling feelings by the end I'm definitely curious about their new book coming out I I will I'm very curious to paradise is certainly on my like most intrigued about book list this year for sure how do you pick what you're going to read? Do you rely on reviews, uh, suggestions from friends? Do you have like specific people who you're like, I know if they blurb the book or whatever that you trust? So I'm a sucker for a good synopsis. Okay. Like the marketing copy totally works on me. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, what I would typically do, I mean, especially before um, the pandemic was I could just spend a very long time in a bookstore mm. and just pick up different things and read the back and then also reading the first page and seeing if it sucks me in. I'm a strong advocate in kind of a very compelling beginning. Um, okay. And so like those two things together, I'm a sucker. Did you have any input in your marketing copy for your book? Yes, we went back and forth a couple times with it because it's very hard to it's a it's a lot of plots. It's a lot yeah. of like um, context and setup. Uh, so we went back and forth a couple times on 
getting it right and giving the reader just enough information so they kind of get the gist of of what's in there. Okay, that makes sense because your book has good marketing copy and a very good beginning. Thank you. I mean, not not to talk about your book again. I said we would stop, but sorry, I have to say this. I love plot. I know people love like character development. I think a good novel has a great plot and the characters develop as you go. I think if you have one or the other, it's not a good book. And I love that your book felt like it was driving towards something for so long. Like I was like, let's go, let's go. In a <laughs> like, I feel like usually it's like a thriller will do that for me where I'm like, what's going to happen? But your book isn't a thriller. And I think that's really fucking cool that you were able to like drive us towards this thing and let these people unfold. It's just, it, it has such good balance. And that first half is just like, holy shit. Oh, so that's thank all I'll say. You. Thank okay, you. I'm really done. I'm really done. I'm really done. I think. I think. Who knows? I can't be trusted. Um, okay. What is the last or what? what's a book that you love to recommend to people? So there's actually a couple. Um, okay. One is called Black Diamond Queen. So this is a nonfiction book. Anyone who loved Opal and Nev, I recommend this book. Um, it is about the contributions of African-American women to rock and roll specifically. Mm. So, of course, there's a chapter on Tina Turner, but there, my favorite parts, there's a chapter about LaBelle and there's mm. a chapter called Negotiating Brown Sugar, which mm. is like very the Rolling Stones song, which is actually pretty... I'm, I mean, can we curse on here? It's a pretty fucked oh. up song. Um, <laughs> All I do is curse but, on here, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's one book that I absolutely love and recommend. And the second one is, should be on everyone's anticipated list for 2022. It's, you know, now that I'm a published author, one of the perks is that I get a lot of advanced books yeah. from people. And I have read one of my favorite, favorite books recently. It's called All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thankum Matthews. Comes out in summer of 22. And it is a really beautiful book about friendship, about money. And they're written about in ways that are completely uncynical. It's a group of people who make the same mistakes that you or I would make, but there's so much love between these characters mm. um, and so much support they show for each other. I loved it and I can't wait for other people to read it. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I hadn't heard of it, adding it to the list right now. Okay, how do you organize your books? So this kind of caused like a war in my house because my, my husband is a creative director. Okay. Um, and so when we moved in together, when I came back from graduate school, this was in 2018, his books were all arranged by color. And I, I'm like, this looks pretty, but how do you find anything? Okay. Like all the fiction and nonfiction was mixed up together. Okay. <laughs> and so what we did was, we put the fiction on one set of shelves and that's arranged by author. And that's like basically like the majority of my books are fiction. So um, when I'm looking for something, I can easily find it. And then the nonfiction on a different set of shelves are a little more hodgepodge, just a little bit more by color. Um, so that was the compromise that we did. 
That's nice. Yeah. I'm team color. I organize by color, but I'm a visual person. Like I can tell you exactly where a book is in my house because I know what color it is. And I know not everyone's like that. Another yeah, thing I've I'm, learned. I'm a little bit absent-minded weirdly. And so I can't remember like always mm. what the colors are, yeah. but I remember I'm, the writers. Yeah. 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 See, I sometimes forget the author. I'm like, I know this book came in. It feels like it was orange to me. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know the title. Like I just have like a sense. Okay. What is your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Snacks or beverages? Um, what's uh, the temperature? What's your accessory, a candle, time of day? Kind of give us a vibe. So ever since I was a kid, um, reading has been my bedtime ritual. So at night, that's when I'm reading mostly in bed. It's the end of my day. If I'm having to read something during the day, there's a little nook in my window uh, in the front room of our house where we live. And I'll open the shutters and I'll have a cup of tea and kind of curl up in this armchair that we what have. What kind of tea? Caffeinated for sure. Okay. Um, sometimes it's Earl Grey. Sometimes it's the vanilla chai that I have. This vanilla okay. chai. We could yeah. have a tea party. I love an yeah. Earl Grey. I love a chai. Yeah. I love a black tea. Yeah, for sure. Very important. There's a there's a small group of Stacks guests that include you now and um, Crystal Hana Kim, who is also a tea drinker. So there's a small contingency of black. A lot of like herbal tea drinkers, not friends uh, with them. Yeah. But the no. black team black tea. Yeah. Always welcome. Always. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite bookstore? You know, I was thinking about this. I don't. I love I love all bookstores. I mean, there are bookstores that I've wanted to go to that I haven't been to yet, Ooh, especially during the pandemic Harriet's in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I finally went to Baldwin and Company in New Orleans. Oh, nice. Um, which was nice, a nice space, a nice community feel to it. Mm. But yeah, other than that, I mean, my neighborhood bookstore is Greenlight. In, okay. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Do you remember the last book you purchased? Oh, yeah. I actually just went and picked some up today. So I'm on a I'm, short stories are my jam right now. Okay. Um, so I just picked up uh, How to Wrestle a Girl by mm. Vanita Blackburn. I picked up uh, Friday Black. Oh, um, yeah. Which I'm really excited to. We did it on the pod. Read. Yeah. I'm getting into a little speculative love. Um, so those are the last two I bought. And I just put in an order for another collection. Gorilla My Love by oh, Tony Cade Bambara, who's yeah. a writer that I've not yet read. Me neither. So, yeah, it's time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. That's one of my ashamed I've never read. Yeah. Kind of people. Same. Okay. You already told me the books that made you cry and angry. What's the last book that made you laugh? Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld. I laugh at a lot of things, like not just (laughs) things that are like, ha ha funny, but also things that I think are clever or that is rooted in something that I recognize. It's very familiar to me, but I haven't seen it written about in that particular way. Okay. Um, And I felt like Rodham was the latter. Like there was some wild, so it's kind of an alternative history Mm -hmm. and based off the idea if um, Hillary Rodham had never married Bill Clinton. And so it presents this kind of alternative history in which Jerry Brown becomes president of the United States for for one term and things like that, that I was just like, 
this is wild. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, um, but it was also kind of writing about real people in ways that were very accurate and thus mm. very funny. So Trump does appear in the book in a, in a very accurate and horrifying and ridiculous way <laughs> that I found interesting and humorous. I love that. I've heard that some of the sexy scenes are cringy, oh, yeah. cringe, cringe, uh, There's a scene in a car and I won't say anymore. Oh my God. I already <laughs> feel sick. I uh, Do you know that feeling like when you're watching someone on reality TV? We call it ETVF, embarrassed TV feeling in my <sighs> group of friends. I have ETVF right now for any sex scene with Hillary Clinton. Oh like, my I gosh, just... I know. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Bill, I know that like, reality oh, TV uh, feeling because oh I watch way too many shows like that. But yeah. It's such a yeah. horrible feeling. It happened, like I used to get it so bad when American Idol was a thing. Oh my God. <laughs> just like the deep embarrassment of for others of like, why are you here? I still get it, you know, but that show was like peak. Oh, oh yeah. God, I oh, like yeah. feel sick right now. Okay. Oh. Is there any book that you feel proud to have read? Yes. So I was such a little nerd as a kid. And I used to spend my summer days when my parents were at work at my grandparents' house. And okay. my grandmother had, she would get sort of the um reader's digest books. I don't know if you remember this, but she had this really thick book on her shelf and it didn't have a cover or a sleeve. And I just wanted to read it because I wanted to read something that was like big and important feeling. Okay. And so I was like 12 years old and I was, I read Roots by Alex <gasps> Haley oh. <laughs> that summer. That wow. was my summer project. I love yeah. that. I want, I've yeah. never read it. I've seen the movie multiple times. I've never read it. You uh, would I want to. love it. I think I want to do it on the it. show. I think it would be a fun book to try on this podcast, like to break it's down. It's a big one. It's a big yeah, one. Yeah, I know it's a but big it one. But it reads, yeah, it reads beautifully. It reads, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it. So I'm just like hoping there's nothing like super problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but um, from what I remember, it was sort of my first nonfiction book that oh, I've well. ever really But read. it's fiction. Well, yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind <laughs> of like his kind of looking back and tracing back his family. His is kind of a blend. I yeah. Guess. Like autobiographical fiction or yes. whatever they call that. Yes. Um, yes. They just, the New York Times just did their like 125 whatever for like the last 125 years of New York Times books. And they included uh, James Baldwin's review of Roots. Oh, um, I didn't actually read it because I was like, I really need to read Roots first. But I think I might have I saved it because I'm so excited. I know to I want to read that. I wonder if he liked it. It um, seemed like he liked it. He was talking about like the first part was like how it's like this gift to America in its centennial year because it came out in uh, 1976. So like that this was like oh, some yeah. sort of like moment for American history. And then I was like, I don't want to read this. I got to wait. But I'm sure it's online. Okay. Oh, I'm I gonna... didn't know. So that was my birth year. I did oh. 1976. I didn't know Roots came out that year. Yeah. Well, at least oh, the review yeah. came out. Who knows? Maybe they, oh, maybe see. they waited. But yeah. I, I think, I don't know. I, what do I know? Yeah. I met LeVar Burton when I was pregnant and he touched my belly and he blessed my children. <gasps> and oh. honestly, I like to call him my children's godfather. <laughs> oh my gosh. So obviously they're going to be readers. Yeah. I, I asked mean... him, he like did this whole blessing. It was very bizarre and amazing. And then I was like, at the end, he was like, you know, like, listen to your mom and like, may the world protect you, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, can you also just tell them to be into reading? And he was like, also read. <laughs> 
That <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, it was an iconic day for me. Anyways, um, okay, I'm going to ask you three more questions and we'll be done. Because okay. you brought up Problematic, what is your Problematic favorite book? Well, so it's funny. I was just listening to... So I was so excited when you did the podcast recently on Waiting to Exhale, mm. which is a book, like one of those books that you steal from your mom when mm-hmm. you finish reading it back in the 90s. But the what the Terry McMillan that I remember really loving was Disappearing Acts, which your guest at the time recalled as not being <laughs> a very feminist book. But, you know, I was sort of young and kind of like, into juicy stuff and like sexy stuff. Totally. um, Yeah. I I remember having some fondness for that book and for books that had, you know, of course like black characters and were really juicy and commercial and like, like all of that. I, I enjoyed it at the time. I love that. Okay. What was a favorite book that was assigned to you in school? Probably Their Eyes Were Watching God, Mm. uh, which is the first book by a Black author that I was ever assigned to read in school. And it was meaningful because I'm from North Florida, as is Zora Neale Hurston, as is Janie, um, the character in the book. And, you know, I always talk about this book that sort of made me aware of the fact that as for as long as I can remember, you know, we didn't have this word back then, but code switching, Mm. you know, Mm because I I went to predominantly white schools, but around my family, I talk different. And um, I remember reading that book. We were assigned a few chapters every night to read and then we would discuss it in class. And my white classmates were just complaining and baffled by the dialogue Mm. um, in the book because they didn't seem to understand it or they claimed not to understand it. And I just remember like, what do you mean you don't understand? (laughs) And then also seeing how Zora Neale Hurston herself was code switching in the text, like between the dialogue and um, the very highly, you know, quote unquote, literary narration. And I just, I just love the book. I loved the characters. Um, I loved the, the feeling of community that it has in some, in some parts of it. Um, Yeah. Okay. Last one. I stole this from the New York times. If you could require the president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Hmm. I mean, I think I think a book like Between the World and Me mm-hmm. is such a slim book, but a powerful book. Yeah. And kind of gets into a mindset of how Black Americans are feeling, how we're thinking about our children, how we worry for our children, what kind of world we want for our children in a way that is not especially academic, but very emotional. Mm -hmm. So I'll say that one. I think that's a great one. You're not the first to say that one. I think that's like, because it's such a readable book. Okay. That concludes our episode for today. But two things. One, Donnie will be back at the end of the month for our you know, annual Toni Morrison read. We're doing Song of Solomon. Very excited. Can't Um, wait. Yeah. So that will be November 24th. There will be spoilers. So read the freaking book, people. Don't at me. And more importantly for now, 
go get Donnie's book. I've linked to it in the show notes. It's called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. You can get it anywhere books are sold. It is out there in the world. It came out much earlier this year, so it exists. It is a fantastic book for you to read. I don't know. Are you in the mood for a holiday gift for someone you know who loves a good story? Maybe an elderly relative or older relative who was alive and rocking out in the 70s. Maybe someone younger who loves learning about history. It's for everyone. A music fan. It's so good. I feel confident recommending it basically to like all types of humans, which is rare for me. I just feel like it, it has it has you know, pace. It has characters. It has violence. It has romance. Like it has all the things. So go get that book wherever you get your books. I've linked to all of Donnie's socials in the, in the show notes. You can find Donnie, all those places. Um, Donnie, thank you so much for being here. Tracy, this was a joy. Thank you for having me. Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Donnie for being my guest. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for November is Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, November 24th with Donnie Walton. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, would you please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review? For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas, and our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. Our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.